Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. Holy Spirit, come and reverberate here among us. Breathe into us and create in us an illumined mind, an open heart, and a belly full of fire. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's Pentecost. This is a holiday in which a metropolitan square was visited by the Holy Spirit. It's an inspiring holiday for many people. You may know that the Pentecostal Church, which started in the United States roughly 1906 at Azusa Street, uh, took this name for itself. The Holy Spirit, though, is a challenging subject for many Christians, challenging for a variety of reasons. Uh, The first is that the Holy Spirit can be controversial. You know this, at least if you've been around the church enough. There are fiery debates regarding what the Spirit does or does not do. It can be a fearful subject, the Holy Spirit, because some people have experienced strange or manipulative things in the name of the Holy Spirit. For some people, the Holy Spirit is entirely unknown. Uh, It's like a mysterious bodily organ. The Holy Spirit is like the appendix of Christianity. You know, you know a long time ago it did something really important, um, but subsequently you're not sure what it does, and if it's removed, that might be all right. But, But for some of us, the Holy Spirit is difficult because... The Holy Spirit is beyond just cognition, beyond propositional truths, doctrinal statements. The Holy Spirit is about action and power and God moving right now. And that's sometimes hard to quantify or think tidily about. And so the Spirit is a challenging spirit in some ways for us. But I would like to speak tonight about how to be a Pentecostal Christian without being a Pentecostal. That's the goal. How do you become a Pentecostal Christian without being Pentecostal? There were two things that the Spirit did at Pentecost that I think can impact us right now and can impact us for the rest of our days. The first thing that the Spirit did at Pentecost was give the gift of understanding. And I mean that in two ways. He gave the gift of linguistic understanding, and he gave the gift of biblical understanding. You know, linguistic understanding is incredibly important. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country and you only speak English, you understand how difficult it is to to know where you need to go. If you need to go to the bank or the bathroom, if you don't speak the language, your life is going to be quite challenging. So linguistic understanding is hugely important, and we see a linguistic miracle take place in this story from Acts. This is from verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, the sound of the multitude came together, this is later, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It's a fascinating scene. You have a crowd, a crowd of people. Many scholars think that the crowd would swell to numbers of about 500,000, all coming into the city for this religious festival, 
this festival that um, united people in belief but not in language. So they all believed the same sorts of things about God and about Israel and about what a holy life looked like, but they had difficulty communicating at least in, the, in their common tongues. And then all of a sudden, you have a verbal miracle. You have the Spirit coming to enable the disciples to preach in languages that they don't know. They could have just preached in Hebrew, you know, because these are devout people from every nation coming to Israel. They would have likely spoken or understood some Hebrew. That's, how the, that's the language in which the Old Testament was written, at least 95% of it. But the Spirit did not enable them to preach in that religious tongue. Instead, he puts in the mouths of the apostles the vernacular, the common vernacular. Why does the Holy Spirit do this? Why not just go the easy route and put everything in Hebrew? Well, there, there are two reasons. Because this linguistic, this linguistic miracle marks two enormous changes in what the Germans call Heilgeschichte, holy history, a religious, the religious story of Israel. Two big changes. The first change is that God is not only for people who speak Hebrew. It is to send the message early on in the book of Acts that was already mentioned by Jesus that God is for everybody. God is for everybody, and that's why the disciples are to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. This is a preview of the ends of the earth, that God is now for everybody. Israel was used by God for a particular time and for a particular purpose, to bring about the Messiah. Now that the Messiah is here, he's the Messiah for everybody, and the whole world needs to know, and so every language is a valid vehicle for the gospel message. The second reason is that Pentecost marks the conclusion of an age-old punishment. You may remember at Babel's Tower way back in the primeval history of Genesis that uh, the people decided to construct this tower into paradise. We're not entirely sure why, but they were very proud in doing so. They may have wanted to control the gods. God um, judged this action and confused all of their languages, uh, therefore breaking them apart and uh, causing them not to be able to communicate or work, to work with one another. And this sent people living there into dis in disparate directions. Uh, and this is a reversal of Babel. Pentecost is a reversal of the curse of Babel because now language is not used to break people apart, but to bring everybody together. There is no longer a verbal Berlin Wall separating peoples. And so this is the <clears throat> linguistic understanding that the Spirit provides. And the idea is an important one, that the gospel is by its very nature translatable and open, not hidden away in a linguistic conclave. This idea goes back to the incarnation itself. In the incarnation, we see an act of translation. In the incarnation, God communicates to us through DNA, through skin tone, and through the Aramaic language. Years later, the words of this same Aramaic-speaking Jesus are written then, translated rightfully into Koine Greek, what would have been regarded as cheap Greek or street Greek, things, the language that was used in the marketplace. That was considered an adequate vehicle for the gospel message. And then we have the disciples now offering that same message, not in Hebrew, not in Greek, but in various languages found throughout the empire. Now, some in religious history have affirmed the sacredness and distinctiveness of particular languages. In Islam, it is commonly believed that the Quran is only validly presented in Arabic. Uh, in pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism, 
church Latin was seen as the rightful vehicle of rightful worship. But according to this passage, uh, we see that the content of the gospel is so universal to every culture that it does not matter if you have white skin or yellow skin or brown skin or you speak with nasally accents or Germanic growls. The gospel reaches everybody, and the gospel is meant for everybody, and language is no longer to be a barrier for that communication. In other words, it is not sacrilegious to translate the gospel into any other language. It is sacrilegious not to do so. We have linguistic understanding, but also biblical understanding. At its core, the festival of Pentecost was a Jewish celebration of Scripture. Pentecost means 50, and it recalled the fact that the law was given to Moses 50 days after the Exodus, celebrating the Torah. What Peter is doing at this celebration of the Scripture, this celebration of Torah, of the law, is helping these devout, remember these are devout people, these are your people who are especially religious, religious enough to want to make a pilgrimage from every part of the Roman Empire. They're that devout, and he's taking these devout, scripture-soaked individuals and explaining to them how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the ancient yearnings that are present in the Old Testament. Peter, in order to make his point about the validity of Jesus, whom would have been regarded by many in the crowd as a blunder because of the crucifixion, He's trying to show how this same Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's come before him. And so what does Peter do? How does Peter relate to his scripture-soaked audience? He starts talking about the Bible. He starts with Joel. The Spirit of God will come, will be poured out upon all flesh. For Joel, this idea of the Spirit, not just given to kings or priests or professionals, but given to everybody, young people, old people, women and men, this was a sign that the day of the Lord was upon us. The, the day of the Lord in which if you just simply called upon the name of the Lord, you would be saved. He's trying to say that day is here, and the evidence is the raining down of God's Spirit that we're witnessing right here and right now. goes back to Joel. But then he moves on to Psalm 16, wherein King David talks about the fact that God shows vindication of his servants by not letting them see decay in a grave. David hopes for this eventually, but says that the Holy One of God, the Messiah of God, will not lay in a tomb forever, but will be raised to life. And Peter says, this has happened. Just as surely as the day of the Lord has occurred and Pentecost has occurred, this event in which the Holy One of God will not see decay has also occurred. That's Psalm 16. Then he moves on to further the point, Psalm 110, in which David cries out to God and yet to another Lord, saying, the Lord God said to my Lord, I'm going to make your enemies into your footstool. In other words, David is seeing that he, as the anointed one of God, is still not the highest anointed one. There is another. He's trying to build a case from these Old Testament texts, some of which would have been used in Pentecost processions to the temple, trying to say to his audience that this same Jesus who was crucified is still the Lord. In other words, uh, the one that he just talked about from Joel, 
that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, it is this one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. It's the name of Jesus. That's the Lord who will bring salvation. And so he's arguing from the Old Testament to make sense of Jesus Christ. Now, where did he learn to do that? Well, he was taught. Luke chapter 24. The risen Jesus sits down with his disciples and says to them, the law, the writings, the prophets, those are the three bundles of Old Testament material. All of them are about me, and not just about me, but about my death and resurrection. Jesus taught them this. So what does Peter then do? Teaches other people the same thing. I want you to notice just for a moment a few two unions. Uh, notice the Pentecostal union between spirit and scripture. Uh, some people divorce spirit from scripture. Back when I uh, was in um, a different diocese at a different time in my life in a different denomination, uh, there was a famous bishop who, who said of many unbiblical things, uh, this, the Holy Spirit is leading us in this direction, which seemed strange unto us because the Holy Spirit there had inspired different scripture that said a different thing. And so some people use the Spirit in a weird way, uh, detach it from Holy Scripture. Some people use the Spirit to trump Holy Scripture. Uh, the Spirit is uh, what you feel inside yourself is great, but the Bible is dead letter. This goes back to a book that is both a work of genius and blasphemy at the same time uh, by Nikos Katsanzakis called The Last Temptation of Christ. In that book, there is a rabbi who was teaching his disciples a lesson about the Bible and the Spirit. And this is what he says to his followers. The words and letters of the Bible are like the black bars of a prison where the Spirit strangles itself with screaming. So the Spirit is being unnecessarily contained by the text of Scripture. Peter has a different approach. Uh, <laughs> The Pentecostal spirit is umbilically tied to the text of Holy Scripture. He directs Peter toward the Scripture and from the Scripture, and he helps Peter and the audience to understand Scripture. And so the spirit and the Scripture are braided together. But notice also the union between the spirit and Scripture's Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us perceive not only the Bible, it helps us to perceive Jesus as the center of the Bible. Without Jesus, the Bible does not make sense. I've met many people that are extremely well-versed in Scripture and the Bible's grammar, languages, structure, and content. They can talk to you about the inductive method of Bible study until the cows come home, and yet they still don't understand that the entirety of the Scripture is not about us, it is not about ethics. It is not about philosophy. It is not about America. It is not about any other country. It is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus, Old and New Testament. Remember, at this point, Peter is only quoting from the Old Testament. It's about Jesus, finds its fullest fulfillment in Jesus. And so if we read the Bible apart from that understanding, we will misread the Bible. The Holy Spirit gives this precious audience, both linguistic and biblical understanding. It's so important that we understand that some people have found that their experiences with the Spirit have been mystifying or confusing or threatening. If that's been the case, I'm not sure it was the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit comes to bring clarity, 
The Holy Spirit comes to take away the fog. The Holy Spirit is here to help you understand who God is in an unobscured way. And if what is happening to you is the opposite of that, it might not be from the Spirit called holy. This is the Holy Spirit's purpose, to bring understanding. It's more than that. It's also empowerment. Empowerment. This is what Jesus promised uh, his disciples before the Spirit came. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then, of course, it happens. And notice how the crowd reacts. This is verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Notice what astonishes the crowd. Not so much the wind, not even the languages, not at this point even the content of the message. What shocks them is the Galileans. Like, really? Aren't these people rubes? Aren't they rubes? I mean, don't, they don't know better. These are like high school dropouts who can't discern a salad fork from a dessert fork. These are people who work at Sheets and make you mozzarella sticks. By the way, I'm not putting that down. I go to Sheets every day. Uh, it's a wonderful um, kind of pilgrimage. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Just saying. But, but here's the thing. They think they're just Galileans. Who are these people? They, they fish. I mean, give me a break. They've never studied with Gamaliel. I mean, what could they possibly teach us? And yet, here they are, speaking. And the truth is, the disciples are actually far worse than the crowds knew. The crowds just thought these disciples are common. We know, based on the text, they're cowards. They're deserters. As soon as trouble Reared its head, you had one betrayer, one denier, who happens to be the the speaker in this story, and then all the other disciples hid in a bunker. These people are cowards, and, and yet, these are the ones whom God chooses as his vessels. And in order to change them and make them his vessels, he sent to them the Spirit, and the Spirit is the change agent. They didn't attend a seminar to discover their inner power, they didn't engage in gestalt therapy, which I recommend, by the way. Gestalt all the way. But um, that was, oh my gosh, this, uh, that was funny. Gestalt therapy, it's funny. Uh, but power, they didn't discover that kind of power. What happened? They received the spirit, this external source came to live within them, and then took the gospel message, the idea about Jesus' death and resurrection, and it made it more than just facts. It made it part of their story. It incorporated all that was true of Jesus and brought it home and had it live in their own hearts. And to the degree that the pagans noticed it and in Acts 17 looked at them with derision and said, these are the men who are turning the world upside down. These people. Christianity, friends, is more than just knowledge. More than just understanding. As good, and I mean that, as good as those things are. Sometimes we really believe that the only solution to problems within Christians or the Christian church is just more education, as if the brain is unfallen, by the way. If we just educate people well, if they just took more classes, more classes in Christianity, if they had more classes in theology, you know, they would be a perfect Christian person, and then they would finally arrive. We need more than education. 
And we know this implicitly because all of us have met biblically astute people who have Brillo pads for hearts. They're cruel, they're mean-spirited, they're combative. And they know a lot about Scripture. We need more than education. We need empowerment by the Spirit. Empowerment uh, not only to proclaim the gospel, but hopefully by God's grace to live in line with it so that our orthodoxy matches our orthopraxy. We need empowerment because without the Spirit, friends, our task is too great and our wills are too weak. And so the Spirit gives understanding and the Spirit gives empowerment to these unlikely vessels. Now let's talk about the Spirit and you, the Spirit and me. What is our goal here, our Pentecostal goal? It is not, friends, to have an exact repeat of Pentecost. Pentecost is a unique occurrence within God's salvation history. And so some of the phenomenological things that occur at Pentecost probably will not happen to you. At the same time, there are Pentecostal reverberations without which we wither in our Christianity. And they are, of course, understanding and empowerment. We need deep understanding from the Spirit tethered to the Word. Deep understanding because life is like fog in London. can't always see where you're going. We are often confused. Do you not sense it in yourself? We are often confused about the heavens, what's going on in the mind of God. Uh, we are confused about how to raise our children, how to be a single person without going crazy, uh, how wives and husbands ought to act toward one another, how we are to deal with our friends. The Holy Spirit clears the air, not by unveiling everything, but by unveiling life's center. And what is life's center, Scripture's center? It's Jesus. And if you understand the center, you can start to see a little bit more. You can start to understand the edges of life, too. And some of your questions about life will be answered because you get the center right. And the Holy Spirit is here to clear away the fog from the one man. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief, brutally killed for our sins, risen for our justification. John's Gospel says that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. This is his job, to give us that wholesome measure of understanding. But we also need empowerment for a variety of things, really. It might be empowerment to be a witness, that is, to overcome our social anxiety and fear and speak more openly about our trust in Christ. It might be to be brave, that is, to stand up for what is right in spite of everyone pressuring us to shut up. Maybe it's steadiness, because you're in the midst of a difficult marriage or a difficult situation uh, with a job, and you have to be steady and just not fade right now. Maybe it's honesty. That is, you have to be more candid about your own sins and not pretend like you've arrived. I have, um, I was going to say a friend, but he's, he's more of an acquaintance, you know. Uh, he's an acquaintance who is, he's a Christian, but he's mad all the time, and he's very hostile. And he's a writer, so that's, you know, good. And he's, he realized that as he aged, he was becoming more and more isolated and really didn't understand why. And I had a minister friend challenge him on it and said, why don't you spend time with Jesus and ask that question? Why is it that I'm becoming increasingly isolated? And he did. And he came to some interesting conclusions and, in fact, wrote a poem about his inner experience. I'm just going to read you a portion. This is what he says. 
When Facebook friends are many, but real-life friends are few, and there really aren't any who deign to dine with you, it might be time to ponder if there's something that you do that makes other people fonder of folks who aren't like you. (laughs) But what beautiful, spirit-driven candor. The honesty to look within and assume, you know, maybe it's not everyone in my life who has the problem. Maybe, just maybe, it's me. We need empowerment. We need understanding. And this kind of spirit-born understanding and empowerment can turn a troubled world upside down. I'm going to close with this example of how that occurred in one, on one occasion. Uh, Chuck Colson, from the, you know, Watergate fame, uh, dedicated himself after his time in prison to ministry in prisons. And he, he got a lot of chaplains and a lot of ministries uh, started in various prisons across the country. But Colson writes about his visit uh, to the Hameita prison in Brazil. And some years ago, the Brazilian government turned the prison over to two Christians. The plan was to run the prison based on Christian ideas. And the prison has only, to this day, two full-time staff, and the rest of the work is done by the inmates. They cook, they clean, they keep watch. And Colson was deeply moved by his visit there and wrote about it uh, extensively. I'm going to read you just a, a little quote. When I visited Hamaita, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys and opened the gate and let me in. Uh, wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living spaces, people working industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from the Psalms and the Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told me, the torture cell houses only a single inmate. He swung open the massive door slowly, and I saw the prisoner in that cell. A simple crucifix, beautifully carved by the inmates of Hamaita, The prisoner was Jesus, hanging on a cross. And then the inmate said, he's doing time for the rest of us. What was happening in that prison? Understanding and empowerment. That's always what happens when the Holy Spirit invades. Friends, you have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says, we have all been baptized into one body by one Spirit. But there's even better news. The Holy Spirit's work can increase in our lives. He can enthrall us even more. Jesus tells us how this happens, you know. This is Luke chapter 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, that, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? And so do we dare, I mean, do we dare open the door to the furnace of love that is our God in the Holy Spirit? Do we dare open ourselves to that? Open ourselves to the fact that God has even more for us? It is so easy, friends, to dismiss the Holy Spirit 
all of this sounds too frightening and reminds me of my childhood. Or, I've asked before and nothing happened. Or, the Holy Spirit isn't really there, this is just a projection of my own inner consciousness, and to follow that idea is just downright dangerous. Or, I don't want to be like those unstable Christians I see on TV. There are a million good reasons to say no to the Holy Spirit. Or, we could say, "Ah, I give up. Over to you. We could ask. And if we ask, we will not be turned down. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.